We rejoice to be together this morning in the study of God's Word, so take your Bibles if you would and look with me at Romans 1. As you know, we've been studying the matter of the kind of pride and the expressions of pride that Jesus has been pointing out in our study of Luke's gospel, but by way of introduction, I want to sort of get into it again this morning in our list of things that help us cultivate and nurture humility by looking for a moment at what the scriptures teach in Romans 1 about what the fundamental problem has been and and what pride looks like. You know, there are all kinds of ways that the scriptures help us understand what the first sin was. And essentially, you can categorize it a number of ways, but there are places in scripture which boil it down in simple terms. You note in Romans 1 that, that there are two problems in the human heart as it relates to the sin that so desperately plagues our lives. Verse 21 gives you a concise definition of this pride and its manifestation that came out in the corruption of human beings. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or some of your translations would say to give him the glory that he is due. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. And of course, it later goes on to describe the fact that they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. So we know that pride at its very heart is this exaltation of the creature over the creator. Now, the ninth chapter of Romans, just moving forward through the book for a moment, down to chapter 9, you notice in a discussion about the the sovereign work of God in hardening Israel for a time and having a a season of gospel extravagance to the Gentiles globally, that's essentially what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about. It's about the fact that Israel was elect as a nation. They are. There's a remnant in Israel that's elect, and that even the current disobedience and hardness of Israel does not mean that God has abandoned the covenant he made with that remnant people Uh, primarily and first with the Jews, and then globally, as all the nations, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation get in on the Abrahamic covenant blessings that are extended in the grace of God, as was foretold by the prophets. But in that discussion in Romans 9 on God's electing his people, he makes a statement about the creator that, that really gets to the heart of this problem that we have. Notice Verse 19, you'll say to me then, speaking about the the people who are hearing Paul say that God hardens whom he desires and and puts mercy on whom he desires. He has compassion on whom he has compassion, mercy on whom he has mercy, hardens whom he desires to harden. And you'll say to me in response, why then does he find fault for who resists his sovereignty, literally? Verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And then here it is. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or verse 21, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? These are um, illustrations from the Old Testament prophets 
In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16, the same comment was made by the prophet. Look, God does what he wills. He is sovereign. And does he not have a right over the clay? Now, that tells you then that the the pride that exists in the corruption of humanity at its very heart is this fundamental issue. We want autonomy. We do not want to respond to the creator to whom we are beholden. We want autonomy. Human exaltation, the exaltation of the human heart, as Romans 1 taught, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks, was an attempt to overthrow God's creatorhood and to deny that we are beholden to the creator, that we are mere creatures, we're finite, we're dependent. We've never been anything but dependent. By nature, we are not autonomous. Our life is sustained by the creator, not just created. It's not like the theistic evolutionist who who says he just sort of started it all, got sort of the chemicals going, and then just let it run on its own sustaining life interest, not at all. God made it. God sustains it. God will rule over it. Pride at its very heart is an attempt to become autonomous or to declare that we are autonomous, something that is impossible. By nature, we cannot be autonomous. So then, everywhere pride expresses itself, and, and when we look at it from the other angle, how to nurture humility, we, we get a great deal of understanding on what we need to do to counteract this problem when we think about pride that way. Pride at its very core is a defying of God as our sovereign, as ourselves, as dependent creatures in desperate need of a relationship with our Creator. That is man's problem. He doesn't honor him as God nor give thanks, and therefore he is given over to such things as his corruption will bring. You see the same thing when when Job, having suffered a great deal that he suffered because Satan was making an accusation against God, pride exists in the angelic realm, and of course the the ultimate murderer, the ultimate liar, the ultimate arrogant one is Satan himself, the adversary, and he was accusing God of protecting Job's faith by not letting evil befall him. Oh, you padded his life, God. And of course, ironically, Satan had to ask permission from a sovereign God to do anything to Job. Somehow in his twisted mind, he couldn't figure that out. Nonetheless, he wanted permission, and when he was given it by God, God was sending a message to Satan, look, if I grant faith and repentance to one of my corrupt creatures whom was deceived back in the beginning, and now now all of my creatures are corrupted because of that deception that you perpetrated, if I grant him faith and repentance and and I do that for his salvation, you cannot take it from me. You cannot take him out of my hand. You cannot rob him of his salvation. When that occurred, Satan went at him. And as you know, Job suffered greatly. And, and during the time of his great suffering, some counselors came along. They weren't the greatest counselors, even if they intersected with theology here and there that was decent. They, in and of themselves, had a wrong view of all that God was doing. But Job himself, in his own heart, began to think like a fleshly man 
And while he trusted God, ultimately not losing his faith because God was protecting it, he did complain, and at one point complained so directly as to question God's goodness and his power and his sovereignty. And so in Job chapter 38, you have God beginning a dialogue with his servant Job, very patiently doing it, but nonetheless forthrightly. And in Job 38, God says, Job, where were you? Where were you when I made the earth? Where were you when I set it on its axis? Where, where were you when I created the animals? Where were you when I stored up all these things in the hydrological cycle? Where were you when I set the planets in place in a solar system that man still ten, nearly 10,000 years later can't measure? Job, where were you? And, and as you know, the story goes, we don't have time to go over it, but Job gets the message halfway through this little interrogation, uh, he puts his hand on his mouth and, and in a, an initial moment of humility says, I've said too much. Now, that's a good start. It's just not enough. So God kept going. And for two more chapters, he gave him another interrogation. Where were you when I did this and this and this? And he mentions dinosaurs and he mentions the hailstones reserved for the judgment, uh, 100 pounders. He, he, he mentions all kinds of things. Said, where were you when I did all that? Are, are you around? Can you see those things? And do you take care of the animals that no one ever sees or up in the mountains in their gestation cycle and you see them give birth? Are you taking care of all those? And at the end of this four-chapter interrogation, it is, it is Job that gets the message and begins to nurture something in his heart that he should have been been pouring gasoline on all along. Look, I'm not autonomous. God is sovereign. I should have listened. I should not have complained against my God. To complain against God is to formulate in your heart pride that says I'm autonomous. And Job knew he wasn't autonomous, and he finally took his hand off his mouth and said, I repent. I repent. Forever questioning Look at Philippians chapter 2 for a moment, just as we develop our understanding of this and then continue to cover our list of principles for nurturing humility. Philippians chapter 2 mentions this very problem. You notice that as Christians, here is the instruction for our Christian life. Verse 12, right in the middle of the verse, you're to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear God, revere God, and and believe God. Tremble at his word. Humble yourself under it and believe his word, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, on the heels of which comes this command, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, by extension, that has become seminar material for how to help people resolve conflict. But in this context, its biggest punch is far different. Its biggest punch is do not dispute with God's work and his willing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Don't dispute God's plan. Don't dispute his sovereign work. Don't complain and, and bristle. And What is being mentioned here then is how pride expresses itself. Pride expresses itself in complaints and in 
disputes against what God calls us to, what God involves us in, what God does with our lives. We're not to be like we were in our pagan life where we don't give honor to him or give thanks. We're not to be like we were in our pagan life where we think, hey, I have the right to complain against the potter. We're not to be like those who, who might throw up disputes against Scripture because it, it comes against the pet and very precious little darling idolatries that we hold. We're not to be a people who dispute with God and grumble at God. Now, if Jesus, in, in his confrontation of the Pharisees, teaches us anything, it's, it's that desire for autonomy spreads itself out into all kinds of manifestations of pride, and we see these in our own lives time and time again, even though now we're already in Christ. You remember in Luke 14 that Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And you remember at that dinner party that he was at, he pointed it out one after another. If you've been with us in our study, he, he pointed out that pride hates righteousness. They're seeking to trap him. He's the holy one. They don't like it. Pride always trips over its own cleverness, its own traps, reiterating what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 and following. It is the Lord who knows the reasonings of the wise that they're foolish. He catches us in our craftiness. It is God who's, who, who is sovereign. We set our own trap when we think in pride. And pride was selective with the scriptures. They, they were trying to hold Jesus to some traditional view of the Sabbath in Luke 14, and yet they themselves wouldn't even practice it behind the scenes. It was, it was the worst kind of hypocrisy. And then they were taking the chief seats, as you know. They sought the praises of men. We looked at that, and then they... The host that threw the party did it because it was a mutual back-scratching effort. I, if I give you a party and make you distinct in, in the midst of these, so you'll do the same to me when I come to your party. And there, there was no sense in which they were nurturing, nurturing an actual love for people that they otherwise would have considered defiled. Not at all. They just looked down at people. And so in light of what Jesus was teaching at that gathering, confronting the pride that was being manifested, we began to develop a little list of ways to nurture humility, the first of which I, I sort of mentioned again here in the introduction. The first way to nurture humility is to submit to Christ's lordship, his sovereign lordship. It is humbling to have to acknowledge day in and day out that we are not autonomous, beloved. To, to make sure that you don't dispute and complain against God and throw up arguments about what he allows in your life. Even when Job did that, God was relentless, though gracious. Where were you? Why are you coming into the inter-Trinitarian council room and trying to bring information you think we don't have? Don't do that. 
He works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. Isn't it interesting that the distinctive, the, the one distinctive that makes the true and living God who he is, as opposed to every other false God that man makes, the one distinctive is God can call the end from the beginning. How does he do it? Not because he looks down through the quarters of time to sees what, and sees what man is going to do. It's because God has ordained all the days of mankind and their habitation and their boundaries, Paul would say on Mars Hill when he preached in Acts 17. And Psalm 139 says the same thing. All the days for me were ordained when as yet there was not even one of them. Not merely the number, but the exact events and happenings of each of my days. How God does that is never explained because absolutely it will not fit into our finite minds, but it is no less true. It is humbling to say every day, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. It is humbling to say what Job said in Job 42, verse 2, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It is humbling to say what Isaiah said as he spoke for God in Isaiah 29, 16, shall the potter be considered equal to the clay? All of us are the work of your hands, Isaiah 64, verse 8. For in him we live and move and exist, Acts 17, 28. He is sovereign. It's humbling. Furthermore, you want to nurture humility, then learn everything Scripture says about the necessity of the cross and see yourself there. I love what C.J. Mahaney said one time. He said, we all walk around. Well, he was quoting Luther. We all walk around with the, the nails in our pocket. And then he said to the crowd, Mahaney did, where are those nails? Reach in your pocket. It is humbling to understand the necessity of the cross and that my sin held him there. My sin caused the wrath of Almighty God to be poured out on an innocent substitute. It was a love I cannot fathom. There was a divine severity in it of wrath that would absolutely send me out of consciousness were I to see it in all of its gripping reality. And it is followed by the power of the resurrection and the exaltation of our Savior. Learn everything the Scripture says about the cross of Christ and nurture humility in it. I've said so many times, beloved, if you ever get over your conversion, you must go back and study the issue. We should never be over our conversion. It should permeate our everyday life. It should course its way through the veins of our spiritual life so that it comes out of our speech every day. We, we should be, as a people, able to weep at a moment's notice thinking about the cross. We should never get over the necessity of it, the severity of it, the totality of it, and the irrevocability of this great power that God gives to overturn it, which I had no hope of attaining without his mercy. 
And then principle number three we looked at last week, which was to open your heart to the Spirit's renewal, to open your heart to the Spirit's renewal. And, and primarily I mean by that what we looked at in 2 Timothy 3, 17, that the Scriptures do a process work. The Scriptures do not leave out any steps. And we looked at the rebuke of the Scriptures and the reproof of the Scriptures and the correction of the Scriptures and the training in righteousness so that we're thoroughly outfitted and fully equipped for every good work. Now, the Scriptures are going to do that work by exposing thinking that's wrong. Every way that we reason, we have to, we have to be redone. The Scriptures also show us where beliefs and convictions have, have rooted in them things from the world, things from the old life, the old man. The old man is to be put off. Well, how can you put him off if you can't identify it? So the Scriptures help you identify convictions and beliefs that are part of the old man and then helps you get rid of them. It also shines a bright light, as we looked at last week, on desires and motives. As Hebrews 4.12 says, it cuts between the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sometimes in counseling, we marvel at how you can just open the scriptures and it just starts to surgically cut, even without commentary. And the scriptures examine our conduct and help us diagnose our problems with piercing clarity, the heart behind the action, out of the mouth the heart speaks, Jesus said, recorded in Matthew 12. So ask yourself a few questions just in light of what we looked at last week. This whole idea of throwing up disputes against God, this is an arena where that can happen. You're reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, and suddenly it's doing this work. It's exposing wrong reasoning. It's it's showing us where your convictions and beliefs are somewhat worldly and mixed. It's shining a light on desires and motivations. It's examining conduct, and it's showing the heart behind what you do and you say. And when it does that, ask yourself these questions. Number one, do you allow arguments or doubts about truth to rise up in your heart? Do you allow it? Is there a place for doubts about God's goodness is there a place for arguments against Scripture that, that, that go beyond mere wanting to understand Scripture, but they actually are the arguments of a skeptic heart, the unbelieving heart? Here's another question. When the Scriptures speak of something supernatural, and I mean everything from miracles you see listed in the Bible to the miracle of conversion itself, that a dead, depraved heart gets made alive by Christ in his sovereign grace. The supernatural character of what is written in Scripture, do you nurture theories in your heart to explain those away? Do you nurture in your heart theories to explain it away? You know, sometimes Scripture will, uh, it just blatantly says what it says. Um, you know, uh, the Red Sea was parted. <laughs> and you have people who name the name of Christ who don't buy into that. When the scriptures say that the earth was created and the heavens were created in six days and a morning and evening sky cycle, we have old earth people who love scientific observation and its conclusions, and they have brought that to bear upon a text of scripture as general revelation, and it affects their interpretation of special revelation, and they think that the scriptures just, that can't be possible. Six, 
24-hour literal days for all that massive scientific energy to explode into existence? Impossible. It has to be deep time is embedded in those days. And on and on it goes. What, what is happening in the heart? Pride. It is pride that raises up arguments against what we know the Hebrew scriptures teach by its grammar and structure. It is historical narrative. It always has been. It never will be anything other than historical narrative by its very markings in the language. We don't like that. We like to develop theories about how this stuff could happen. Well, an east wind blew across the Red Sea and it opened up, you know, and well, I'm not really sure about this or that. And do you nurture theories in your heart to explain away the supernatural dimension? Sometimes scholars who name the name of Christ will take the Bible and set it against all kinds of other ancient literature. Uh, the oldest of which we have is Homer's Iliad. The scriptures is the oldest, and, and the next closest thing is Homer's Iliad. And we'll, we'll sort of study the Bible next to those pieces of literature as mere literature. And the reason we do that is because we, we struggle with the fantastical and supernatural nature of Scripture as a distinct uh, artifact, as, as a work of God, as sent from God. We struggle with that. We battle with that. And so cyclically in evangelicalism, you have theories that are trumped up about, well, how did the Scriptures come in to, to play? How, do, how did we get them? And is it really written by the Spirit of God? And what parts of it are actually the words of Jesus? And on and on these kinds of skeptical arguments go. Do you nurture theories in your heart to explain away the supernatural nature of Scripture? Nurture humility by jettisoning all such attempts. How about this? Do you create a softer version of certain realities found in Scripture? For example, the doctrine of hell. Do you create a softer version of that in your mind? That is pride. You study the doctrine of hell, it is no doubt frightening. It arrests the heart. You can't study it without being utterly gripped for the rest of your life by the study. Uh, that's understandable. But there are individuals who just cannot imagine that there would be such a, an eternal punishment, and so new views get raised up by people who name the name of Christ. Well, we just go out of existence. Well, annihilation, or, or false religious systems which tell you that you can sort of earn your way out of it and, and purge yourself of the things that sent you there and actually get out, and none of which is, is in Scripture. Do you create softer versions? What about God's sovereignty? I mentioned God's sovereignty earlier. Uh, well, God is, God is sovereign. Yes, he's sovereign, but, but man has an autonomous free will. He has a libertarian free will. He has to be able to, or he wouldn't be able to be held accountable morally, and because I don't understand the way Scripture, you know, sort of intersects at places because of paradox, I'm just going to toss aside the biblical understanding of such things. I'm not going to come all the way to the Scripture and let it speak. I've, had, I've actually heard people say, I don't, I don't believe in the doctrine of predestination. Well, you're going to have a tough time. It's actually in all kinds of scriptures. It even says of the Savior in 1 Peter that he was foreknown or foreloved. It's the same idea. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world and then appeared at the proper time to put away sin. This is our Savior. He himself was also predestined 
to be our Savior? Do you create softer versions of these things? Election. How about depravity itself? Well, we're depraved, but I just I can't believe we're that dead. I mean, we got to have some, some little vestige of prevenient grace rolling around in there because I have to be able to see my plight and see Christ and make my own choice. That's the only way I could be held accountable in eternity. So to nurture humility, don't allow arguments or doubts about the truth, skepticism to rise in your heart. Don't nurture theories that explain away the supernatural nature of Scripture. Don't create softer versions of certain realities that the Scriptures are straightforward about. Here's another question. Do you make excuses for cultural or patently unbiblical ideas that have leaked into the church? Don't make excuses for them. Do you make excuses? Say, what do you mean? Well, for example, the whole self-esteem movement. The self-esteem movement. The scriptures do not bear out that, that there is this massive problem among human beings that we don't love ourselves enough. The scriptures let alone life, teaches quite the opposite. Sure, people punish their lives. Sure, people do terrible things to themselves and call it self-hatred. But what they hate is the guilt and the consequence of sin. They hate the consequences of having loved themselves rather than Christ. I understand the way culture twists it, but that leaked into the church. The prophet of that, so-called, was Robert Schuller, who basically pioneered that whole idea and said that the greatest sin is a lack of loving yourself. He couldn't have been more incorrect. But the church has sort of made excuses for this and in pride allowed these things to live on. Uh, there are ideologies like, uh, you know, the hero lies within you, you know, the We've sort of allowed these things to leak into family life. You can do anything you want to do as long as you put your mind to it. That is not true. That's not true. God is sovereign and you're made a certain way and you can improve and, and do wonderful things and you can develop skill, but we are plagued with sin and God has a plan. And to tell young people that, to believe in themselves, is an ideology from culture that has leaked in and has no place. And we've just made excuses for it. Why? Because we like the culture's friendship. We don't like to, to receive ridicule and mockery for what the Bible does say. How in the world did you think homosexuality got to be accepted in and among so-called evangelicals? Because... People want the culture's acceptance and they name the name of Christ. And so if you want to nurture humility, ask yourself, do I make excuses for those things? Because it is pride that makes an excuse. This is what Romans 1 teaches, does it not? Even though they know God, they do not acknowledge him as God or give thanks. What does it mean to acknowledge him as God? It means to trust him, to know him for who he is, to believe him by faith, Hebrews eleven six, because you believe he is who he says he is and rewards those who seek him. This is what we're commanded to do. This is how you cultivate humility. There's another ideology that leaked into the church. Forgive yourself before you can forgive others. That's not in scripture. That's nowhere found in scripture. 
forgive yourself before you can forgive others. Um, yeah, that's a cultural mindset, comes from the flesh. It appeals to the flesh. Um, I realize that you can kick yourself and, and self-pity, but that's all that is. Self-pity is just another form of pride that says, I deserve better, I should have done better, I embarrass myself, I could have done better on my own in my own power. No, you can't. No, in fact, if you really want to be humble, just admit, when you do fail, that's me. I mean, if left to myself without the grace of God, that is me. And the way that I embarrassed myself in my failure, the way that people saw me, the mistakes that I make in my marriage and in my life, that is who, at the very core, I would be in rampant measure if it weren't for Christ. But self-pity comes along and says, I should have been able to do better in my own strength, and I kick myself all day long that I didn't because I embarrassed myself. That's all just self-pity. It's another form of pride. Oh, we, we are commanded, as we'll see in one of the other principles in this list, to forgive. And you don't wait around for some ending of your self-pity. So, do you allow arguments and skeptic doubts to rise up in your heart? Do you nurture theories to explain away the supernatural dimensions? Do you create a softer version of certain realities like hell and election and God's sovereignty and, and depravity? Do you make excuses for unbiblical ideas that leak into the church? Hey, if you want to nurture humility, don't make those excuses. Repent of those excuses and just go back to the scriptures and go back to what the Bible says and then put the cultural arguments up against it and watch the Spirit do a humbling work in us. Here's another question. Do you coddle your pet idols when scripture confronts them? Do you coddle your pet idols when Scripture confronts them? Now, you knew I was going to give a few Scriptures here as an example. So, so let's just go through a few of these because these are the most common, it seems, to my heart. These are the most common that I find in my own heart and struggle. So, for example, when the Scriptures say in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, what is in your parentheses after that? Because I know you have a parentheses and it's in your Bible. It's probably written there. An arrow, except when. And you keep adding to the list. Do you, do you coddle the pet sort of things you want to hold on to? And, and in specifics, when that passage says, be anxious for nothing, do you coddle anxiety and worry and, and sort of qualify what the text says. This nurtures pride, beloved. To try and coddle your pet idol when Scripture is straightforward and you find it hard to obey is to blame God and to blame Scripture or to excuse rebellion and, and say that there are extenuating circumstances and reasons for why you must do this. How about James 1, verse 2? Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Again, we're, we're not suggesting that you can flip a switch when you face something for, over which you can be anxious at times or some trial that you're to, to think about the joy and what it's going to produce. I understand this takes time, but we're talking about the patterns of coddling that can go on in us. 
people go to studies all the time. Oh, be anxious for nothing. Wasn't that wonderful? Um, I was anxious that I was late to the study. And then you took some notes on it. It said, be anxious for nothing. And that night you went home anxious about, you know, the limited resources that you have or some loved one that has an illness or maybe some trouble and unresolved conflict in a relationship that's important to you or a sense of a loss of security from a job loss or whatever. Do you coddle that idolatry? Look, if you want to nurture humility, then let those texts be what they are and go to work on your patterns. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Very, very hard to, to come to the place where you're willing to embrace a test, but at the same time, that is the goal. You don't coddle your idolatries. You embrace the test. Why? Because there is joy at the end of it. There is endurance. There is greater strength. How about another one? 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything, give thanks. Mm. Wow. In everything. Well, uh, we don't thank God for everything. We just don't. So the question is, do you coddle your pet comforts in order to avoid giving thanks and everything? Do you qualify it? How about Philippians 2, verse 3? Regard one another as more important than yourselves. <laughs> Ouch. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's, that's, and... And let's face it, that verse comes in a passage with the supreme example. So it would have been maybe nice if it had been in a different book and you could go to that book and avoid Philippians 2. But Jesus is in Philippians 2. He's the supreme example. And verse 3 appears right dead center in that text. Have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. He regarded us as more important than himself. How can that be? He's the Lord of glory. No one is more important than him. But he regarded our need as more important than the glories that he enjoyed. And so do you coddle a particular comfort because you, you just want to qualify that verse? Well, I regard, I regard people as more important than myself. And, uh, but there are some people who don't seem to want to earn that. You know, they struggle. I'm praying for their struggle. But I wish they could get a little further along, but there are others in my life that I regard as more important than myself. This is what we do. We qualify it. How about uh, Matthew 5.44? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Lord, <laughs> I'm just praying for them. Let them have it. Oh, well, that's not what he's talking about. You know, interestingly enough, even in ancient Israel, they, they sang about passionate moments, impassioned moments where they pled with God that he would put to shame evil nations who blasphemed him. Imprecatory psalms, whatever we want to call them, there were times when 
the righteous indignation of a Christian, of a child of God, expressed itself in, in those things. But it was, it's, it's fascinating when you go through the Psalter and you read how they're calling down for God to vindicate himself and put to shame the enemies of God's people. It's fascinating that the psalmist almost always qualifies it on the tail end of that with something about himself. Very similar in Psalm 119 in the, in the strophe that begins in, in verse 73. And he says in there, may those who've subverted me with a lie be ashamed, be put to shame. Now there's a prayer that God and his truth would be vindicated and others who've persecuted him and caused him the loss of his livelihood because he turned all his friends against him with a slander there's a desire for that person's sin to be exposed and the truth to be known and God's character to be vindicated. And so he says, may they be put to shame. Two verses later, he says, may my heart be blameless that I may not be ashamed. So be careful. Pray for those who persecute you. Do you coddle a secret comfort in your life that qualifies that? You pray for your enemies, all right but it's got an edge to it. Love your enemies, for you're like your heavenly Father when you do so, because he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Love them. What does that mean? Make yourself useful to them. Don't return insult for insult, but return a blessing instead. Instead, Peter adds to it uh, in First Peter 3. Make yourself useful. Pray, pray grace and mercy. One of the most humbling things in our human heart is to pray for mercy upon someone we, want, we just don't want God to express mercy on. We are so much like Jonah. Oh, Lord, I knew you'd be merciful. And I can't stand that person. Well, here is a way to nurture humility. Pray God's mercy and kindness on people who harm you. Pray his mercy on them. Not in the, in the sense of, you know, God have mercy on you for what you did. You know, there's a way we express things that's supposed to sound spiritual, but, but it is filled with, you know, all kinds of jabs. No, but Lord, be kind to them. You've been so kind to me. They have harmed my life. They have done me wrong. This is devastating my heart but I know that you are a merciful God and a compassionate God. And when I get to glory and meet Christ, I will never be able to compare anything that you've done with anybody else with what you've done for me. For I am the chief of those who need mercy. Isn't that right? So if you want to nurture humility, love your enemies. Don't coddle that secret comfort. Don't qualify that passage. Just a couple more. James 3.16. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Oh, we qualify jealousy and selfish ambition all the time. Don't we? Selfish ambition. I mean, that's, that's, that's really a byword of our society and really seen as a virtue People have, even in evangelicalism, written books about how we can sort of recover the best part of ambition, and yet the scriptures don't tell us to go after re rediscovering a better ambition or any of that kind of stuff. It doesn't say any of that. What we're called to do, second 
Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, is to make our ambition to please Christ. In fact, whether you're at home in heaven with Christ or absent from the, and absent from the earth, or whether you're at home on the earth and absent from heaven, you're to make your ambition the same, he says. So that means that what your ambition is going to be in heaven, to honor Christ, serve him, worship him, is to be your ambition here on the earth. There's your ambition. That's it. But do you have particular trophies that you want to earn and you love yourself and want to exalt yourself and so you coddle that and you, you try to sanctify unrighteous ambition? The scriptures teach that if you're jealous and full of ambition, selfish ambition, you're going to have disorder in your wake and every kind of evil is going to come out of your influence. So, do you allow skeptical arguments about the truth to rise in your heart? Don't do it. Nurture humility. Don't, don't, don't grumble and dispute. Don't raise up disputes against God. Just seek to understand God. Seek to understand what he's doing. Go to his word. Slow the process down. Spread it out. Lord, I want to nurture humility in this process. Do you nurture theories that, that sort of try to explain away the fantastical supernatural nature of Scripture? This is a divine book given by the Spirit of God. That ought to humble you. When you open it, it's not like any other book. God is going to open your eyes so that you behold wonderful things because he's put the mind of Christ in you. Don't nurture scientific or earthly or any other kind of theory to kind of explain away what is very challenging to understand on the pages of Scripture. I, I don't know how many PhD candidates who I went to seminary with have lost their moorings over those kinds of theories. Do you create a softer version of certain realities found in Scripture? Look, if there's a hell and it's eternal, then, then soften your heart under the weight and the profound nature of it. If God is sovereign and Scripture takes you all the way to the wall, then go to the wall and worship at the wall. If he teaches election or human depravity, then study it. Try to understand it. It's a framework to be explored. It's not some question you're going to ever solve because God doesn't answer it in Scripture, but it's there. Don't create softer versions of these things and don't make excuses for unbiblical sort of culturally leaked in ideas. Confront them with scripture. It's, it's a humbling thing to do it. Let the culture say you're, you're bizarre. Let the culture persecute. It humbles the, the human heart. It humbles pride to take a stand on scripture as opposed to be liked by the culture. It nurtures humility. And don't coddle these pet idols that we have where you want to qualify particular scriptures. Admit your error, whatever it is, admit it fully when, it, when scripture is confronting a long-cherished opinion. We are a people of opinions. And we're creatures who can formulate opinions. And we get along pretty decently in a couple of hours on our opinions. And then our opinions, opinions collide with other people's opinions, but, but even then we can make excuses and trump other people's opinions. But ultimately, Scripture is where we ought to go to have these things shaped. And if you have long-cherished opinions that are being confronted by Scripture, if you want to nurture humility, then take those thoughts and imprison them in Scripture, in Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 we, by the truth, are destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. 
These opinions that we formulate, they come from background, they come from friends, they come from circles, they come from our sin, they come from our own flesh, and they're in there, and they're a mix, and the scriptures are going to filter them and shape and get rid of and, and redo those things that we hold as cherished opinions. And when the scriptures come against them, you, you are to nurture humility in that moment. Lord, let me imprison my thoughts in you, in your truth, with Scripture. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and you will nurture humility. You say, well, so far, Pastor, in this list of areas of pride, I have a scorecard I don't want anyone to see. That's true. And so next time, we're going to deal with what you do when you fail. Principle number four is to run to God for mercy. To actually seek forgiveness when you've sinned against God and others. Run to God for mercy. And we'll look at just what that looks like in Scripture next time. Oh, the process is slow, but hopefully helpful to you. Let's bow.